Well, today we've received the strong dose, have we not, from the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. And I plead your patience yet again as we turn to that Old Testament prophecy. Please, to the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 50. Chapter 50. I had not really planned uh, to be in this book uh, this morning, tonight, but then I didn't plan to be in the pulpit this morning either. But it just so happens that uh, this is where uh, the portion of our lot has fallen in the providence of God. And this is the, the prophecy of Isaiah regarded by many as the most evangelical of all of the Old Testament prophets. It, it's just a wonderful prophecy. And uh, so we come tonight to what is usually regarded as the third servant song of Isaiah that we find throughout uh, these servant songs. There are four of them, as I mentioned this morning, that we find. And we're going to consider the third tonight here in the 50th chapter of Isaiah. Hear the word of God as we begin reading at verse 1, Isaiah 50. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce? with which I sent her away, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turn not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? 
Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely or literally stay on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon the ministry of the word. Would you pray with and for me as we come to the throne of grace? Our Father, we bow before you conscious that in us by nature there lies no good thing. And Father, that there is only darkness and even a tendency to misunderstand the things we ought to understand. And Father, as we approach this, your precious word tonight, we are inclined once again to cry out to you for the gracious assistance of the Holy Spirit, that he himself would come upon hearer and speaker alike. And shine on the pages of this word you have inspired for all of us to see. That we may understand and that we may believe all that you have revealed to us herein. Oh Lord, our dependence is utterly upon you. Hear our prayer. Be pleased to answer according to all your tender mercies. We ask in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I've often thought, and I am convinced, that there really is an unsettling, at times discomfitting, realism about the Bible. And if you've never encountered the Bible's unsettling realism, I would be inclined to think that you have never really engaged with the Bible itself. Let me try to offer an example which illustrates what I mean by the unsettling realism of the Bible. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul tells the Corinthians, God always leads us in triumph in Christ. Not some of the time, not most of the time, but all of the time, every moment of every day, every Christian, whether you've been a Christian for many years or a Christian for a few mere moments, God is always leading us in triumph in Christ. But then two chapters later, in the same epistle, chapter 4 and verse 10, Paul says, we're always Caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Always being led in triumph in Christ. And always caring about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus. That is always being given over to death. And he's telling us. 
that these two expressions of always being led in triumph in Christ and always being given over to death for Jesus' sake are happening simultaneously. They're synchronous, happening at the same time. It's not that some of the time we're being led uh, in the Savior's triumphal procession in history, and then at other times we're experiencing the cost, indeed the sore cost, perhaps the deadly fatal cost of belonging to Jesus Christ. He's not speaking here about two matters that are sequential to one another. But he's speaking of these matters that are synchronous, that happen at the same time. We're always being led by God to triumph in Christ, and at the same time, we're always bearing about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus. Now, to speak quite frankly, I find that unsettling. I find that disconfitting in, in many ways. And, and, and yet it belongs to the very fabric and the DNA, as it were, of the Christian life. Two realities side by side, both of which are inescapable. This is part of the realism of the Bible. And it's just this sort of tension between two opposing realities that lay behind the unceasing insistence of our Lord Jesus Christ to the multitudes who were following him that if they were truly to follow him, they needed to reckon with and find closure on this particular issue. Take up your cross. And follow me. Now they were, they were happy. And we read about this in the accounts of the Gospels. They were happy to be led in what appeared to be them to be the Messiah's triumphal procession. As he subdued demons. As he healed the sick. As he made the lame to walk. As he caused the blind to see. As the mute to speak. As he raised the dead to new life. But continually and unceasingly, Jesus pressed upon these would-be disciples to count the cost. Because that would go hand in hand with taking up their cross and following him. And Jesus didn't simply mean here, well, what, what he's really saying is, well, be ready and be prepared for that occasional little circumstantial difficulty that you may encounter in the process of following me that might touch your life in some extreme way. But he is saying to them, be ready to die. That's what he's saying. You are on a path to death. Well, that's what the language means. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, that's an instrument of execution, and follow me. So if someone were to approach you tomorrow and say to you, well, you know, I know that you're a Christian, so please tell me, what does it mean to be a Christian? How can I become a Christian? 
And you could answer, oh, well, I heard about that just last evening. <laughs> we, we heard about this at church. You have to take up your cross and you have to follow Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means you're got, you've got to be ready to die. Ready to die, yes. But even in that experience, we are being led in triumphal procession in Jesus Christ. That's an unsettling realism about the Bible. Which is why in John chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples, he said, If the world hates you, know this, that it first hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, he says. Yet because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. He says, remember the word I said to you, a servant. He's not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is inevitable when one is in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that we share the pathology of Christ. The life of Jesus Christ. Hostility to Jesus Christ. There's no escaping it. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. That is the realism of the Bible. And it's quite unnerving. Now, with that introduction, please look with me now at this, the third song, uh, the third servant song of Isaiah. <clears throat> You'll notice in verses 4 through 9, we have the servant himself who is speaking. And in verses 10 through 11, we have, as it were, a bookend to that. That is an application drawn from the third servant song. Now then, the setting of this book is we're in the middle years of the 8th century before Christ. And God's covenant people, his church, they're in spiritual and moral freefall, as it were. They're still engaged, to be sure, outwardly. And all of the ceremonies and sacrifices that God required of them. Just read chapter 1 of this prophecy and you see that. The services and the ceremonies, they were all intact. And the sacrifices were being offered on a regular basis. And yet God indicts them for their sins. To what purpose, he asks, is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? He says, who, he asks, has required this from your hand to trample on my courts? Your incense, he proceeds to say, is an abomination to me. You see, there was this veneer of orthodoxy within the nation, but it was combined with a heart of corruption. And God's answer is to promise a servant, a servant who in the fullness of time was going to come to redeem God's people. This is the servant of the Lord. This is one of the songs about him. And he will, as the fourth servant song makes clear, which we examined this morning, 
that God will provide His servant to make effective atonement for sin and will gather to Himself a people for the praise of God's glory. But here we're dealing with something that comes quite prior to that. The unsettling realism of this third servant song. Notice how verse 10 begins, and this is what I want to focus upon tonight. Verse 10. This is where Isaiah applies the message of the third servant song. Who among you fears the Lord? Reading now from the New King James Version. Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. And let him rely or literally stay upon his God. Now these words come to us, as I've indicated, in the context of this third servant song of Isaiah's prophecy. Earlier, the Messiah, the promised king, uh, God's savior, he speaks of his mission. And it speaks of how morning by morning, God will awaken his ear to hear. Verses 4 through 5, as those who are being taught... Verse 5, the Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Here, dear people, is the prototypical man of faith. He is expressing in prophetic language, you might say. He is confessing his resolve to be unyielding and unrelenting in following the way of the Lord his God. Even though that way would lead to disgrace and reproach and degradation. And even the degradation of spitting. You see that in verse 6. And then he says, therefore I have set my face like a flint. Nothing, he is saying, nothing is going to distract or divert me from the fulfillment of the mission entrusted to me by my Father. And it's in that context that verse 10 begins. Who among you fears the Lord, who obeys the voice of his servant, the Lord's servant, who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of Yahweh, the covenant God, God's covenant name. And let him rely upon his God. Now there are two things that stand out to me in these few words of verse 10. First of all, and very obviously, we're being told that it, is, that it is possible. Indeed, that it is more than possible for a believer in Jesus Christ to be engulfed in such an experience of darkness. When there are no pinpricks of light. Now this is not being said or predicated of an unbeliever. Or of a wayward, disobedient believer. But these words, the one who walks in darkness and has no light, these words are being spoken to those who fear the Lord. And who obey the voice of his servant. The beginning of verse 10. These words are spoken to men and women who have a heart resolve to be faithful to God's Messiah, come what may. They're resolved to obey Him. 
That does not mean perfect, perfect obedience. None of us are capable of perfect obedience. But what we're talking about here is purposeful obedience. Now, I would guess that most, if not all of us, have experienced moments in our lives, even drawn out periods in our lives, when the clouds of disappointment and difficulties and various forms of sadness and heartbreaking, heartaching circumstances break in upon us and have obscured for a time our view of the assurance of God's love and His mercy. And I wonder if any of us here tonight, and actually as I was preparing this, I had in mind some, some people of our congregation who are not even here tonight. But this is good not only for those I had in mind, but dear people for all of us, and indeed for me. But I wonder if there are any here tonight who have experienced what it means for all of the lights to go out and nothing but darkness all around us. Times when our cries for light only seem to result in the increasing of our darkness. No pinpricks of light when everything is unrelentingly bleak. Virtually every thought is plagued with darkness from beginning to end. And nothing any longer in such a situation makes any sense to us. This is no time to start singing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Not in this passage. The way ahead, though, is utterly shrouded in darkness. And there is the loss of all sense of the victory of Jesus over sin and death and hell. When you walk in darkness and there is absolutely no light at all, you don't know where you are. You even question where you stand with the Lord. You don't know where you're, where, where you're going, where you're headed, let, let alone where you even are at such a time. The prophet is speaking of a darkness that has completely engulfed you and left you speechless and clueless and in the depths of a sorrow that knows no comforting mitigation of this sense of pure agony and misery. What is remarkable here, at least for me, is that this can be the experience, dear people, of a faithful believer in Jesus Christ. It really can. Now, in the context here, the darkness seems, I think, to be the result of an almost lone voice for God and for truth and for righteousness in the midst of a world that hates God and hates righteousness. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? There seems to be an intimate connection between that and what follows. Who walks in darkness and has no light. As a result of fearing the Lord and obeying the voice of his servant. 
there is this remarkable possibility that a faithful believer can find himself or herself utterly engulfed in this impenetrable darkness. Now this was, of course, the experience of the one truly faithful believer, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is surely true that all of the lights went out for him on the cross of Calvary. The high moments of spiritual rapture in the recent past when the heavens were parted and the Father could declare there upon the mount of my transfiguration, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. With on the cross... All of that is completely gone, utterly eclipsed from his experience. And he, as he hangs there upon the cross, there isn't so much as this pinprick of light whatsoever for the Lord Jesus Christ. The 22nd Psalm, perhaps more than any other passage, depicts this absence of light from the Savior. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh Lord, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. Here you see is this deep-seated problem, the antithetical problem in the Messiah's mind. But you are holy, verse 3, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Verse 6, but I am a worm and no man. A reproach of men and despise for all the people. And then the psalmist sings these lines. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him since He delights in Him. But you are He who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. I am poured out like waters. I continue to read the 22nd Psalm. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Here is the one truly, absolutely, incontestably, 
faithful, believing men, the Lord Jesus Christ, and other darkness has enshrouded him on Calvary. Now, of course, there is a diameter of this difference, a world of difference, really, between this man of faith and ourselves. There was a redemptive uniqueness about the experience of the Lord Jesus that's not true at all of ourselves. But nonetheless, his experience, we're told in the scripture, is the template, if you please. It is the guide for our own experience. That we are being conformed to the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is looking to place the template of the life of his son over our lives. But the problem is, is that I think that we, you and I, have lived so long in the Western world in comfort and security that the thought of any such experience seems completely foreign to us. We shrink back from this. We abhor at the thought of this. And perhaps rightly so. But this belongs to the very essence of the believing life. It is part and parcel of the believing life. It is the unsettling realism of the Bible. And it may be that this is, if not a unique experience in the course of one's life, it may be something of an exceptional experience. But why do you think that the book of Job is in the Bible? Well, to be sure, there are certainly different answers to that question, is there not? But one of the answers is to teach us that even the best and the finest of God's servants can ex experience virtually the loss of everything they have. And not due to a failure in obedience. But because of something else that is going on beyond the realm of what can be seen by human eyes. Now this... Is only one thing and not altogether the most important thing. But it is something with which we need to reckon. That such an experience may well be in the good pleasure and providence and purpose of God. What he pleases to bring us through in order to conform us all the more to the image of the prototypical man of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is purposed to do. That in the first place. But then the second thing I want to leave you with this evening is not necessarily the antidote for such darkness. You'll notice no prescription is offered to the man in darkness of how to escape it. I believe the Lord has deliberately let it come into his life. But rather, secondly, I want to address the question of what is the best course of action for us to pursue when we find ourselves in the midst of this kind of darkness of the soul. When darkness is our portion. 
And here, the dear child of God is what Holy Scripture prescribes. Let him trust. Let him trust in the name of the Lord. And let him rely or remain upon his God. That's the course he's to pursue in the midst of that. Him who walks in darkness, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. And here, dear child of God, is this experience of darkness then. And it's enveloping those whom we are called to be believing men and women who trust in the name of the Lord and who rely upon their God. That's what Jesus did, did he not? As, as all hell was unleashed upon our Lord, upon the cross as it were. Even the sense of the presence of his loving father was stripped from him. Eclipsed in his mind and heart to the point that he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In our darkness... We're told that we're to trust in the name of Yahweh, that we are to rely upon our God. Now, the name of the Lord is simply uh, the revelation of his character. That's what the name of the Lord is. Your greatest need in mine tonight is absolutely identical. We need to learn every day of our lives to sink our lives into the revelation of who our God is. Remember Exodus chapter 33 and 34? And what I'm about to describe to you, it, it starts to take place at the close of chapter 33 and it pours over into chapter 34 of Exodus. One of the great momentous episodes in the history of Redemption unfolds in biblical revelation there. Moses prays to the Lord, please show me your glory. And we read that God then causes all of his goodness to pass before him. That he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. And he says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. He reveals his name. That's what his name means. And dear people. That's what it means for us. To live by faith. That when all the lights. Go out. That you never let go. Of the name. Of the Lord. But your trust is in his name. Who is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Who abounds in goodness and truth. Whose mercies are new every morning. Who is himself the Lord our righteousness. Indeed the God who declares I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed. O sons of Jacob. One of my favorite passages in the writing of John Calvin are his comments on Romans chapter uh, 4 and verse 20. 
This, this, is, this is practical stuff from Calvin. This is not high and lofty the, theology as some people may think. Calvin's down in the gutter where we are when he gives these comments to us. And, and there Paul in Romans 4 and verse 20 is speaking of this glorious promise that he had made to Abraham, that in his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed, and the years pass, and the decades pass, and Sarah seems altogether barren. And Abraham, he himself, is beyond the age of fathering children. And Cal, Calvin, he, he offers this wonderful comment as re, he reflects upon what Paul is saying of Abraham. And Calvin says, when all things around us are in opposition to the promises of God, he promises immortality, we're surrounded with mortality and corrupt, corruption. He declares that he counts us as just, yet we're covered with sins. He teaches that he is propitious and kind to us. Outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? You see, Calvin, he's asking, what are we to do when we find ourselves in the darkness of such a situation? And this is what Calvin says. He says, we must with closed eyes, that is, shut your eyes to everything around you, pass by ourselves, that is, get beyond yourself, and all things connected with us, that nothing may hinder and prevent us from believing that God is true. Those are wonderful words. That's what it means to trust in the name of the Lord. When all the lights go out and darkness is our portion. This is the primary battle of faith. It is the primeval battle of faith. Setting the character of God, the covenant God, who is our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Setting the character of God alongside our troubles and difficulties, heartaches, heartbreaks, circumstances, all of these things of darkness. And all of it, no matter what's going on around us, we're to trust in the name of God and stay, rely upon our God. That's why the cross is actually, I think, the supreme remedy and medicine for our soul in the face of whatever darkness may touch and impinge upon our lives. Because in the cross, we see you and I in big, bold letters, the name of the Lord written. We see there the name of the Lord written in all of his redemptive splendor on behalf of his people. In all of its grace and glory and covenant mercy to his covenant people. Therefore, whatever circumstances may be tonight. Maybe you're here tonight and you think darkness has utterly engulfed you. Or maybe there are simply shafts of darkness at different times punctuating your life. Whatever your circumstances are, whatever mine are, 
You and I need afresh the grace and the glory of God's love for us on Calvary. To look upon that. That it may reign over all of our fears. And that it might captivate our hearts. It seems to me that our Lord's own cry of abandonment and dereliction upon the cross was actually the pinnacle. The apex of his believing obedience. There was no murmuring on the part of our Lord. There was no complaining. There was no resentment for that which became his portion. There was holy bewilderment. But there wasn't even an iota of unbelief expressed on his part. It was my God. My God. You see, in all of God's dealings with us, and this is what I mean by the unsettling realism of the Bible. The Bible is so upfront about this that we can, if we're not casual, careful, we can read the Bible so casually, you and I, and fail to grasp the profundity of what it's saying to us in it. In all of his dealings with us, God is pursuing his purpose unrelentingly to make us like his son. To conform us to his image. And that means that the template of his life is being placed daily over our lives. And so in times when God hides himself... As Isaiah describes him in chapter 45 and verse 15. He, he, he is the God who hides himself. He's not being capricious or apathetic or indifferent to our sufferings. He cannot be because he's our loving heavenly father. It's who he is. And he loves us enough even to submerge us at times in darkness, that we may learn in our darkness how extraordinarily, how extraordinarily He is faithful to us and abounding in covenant love to us. Dear people, the measure of our Christian faith is not how we respond to the blessings that God pours out upon us, and He pours all kinds of blessings. Out upon us. But the measure of our Christian faith is put to the acid test is how we respond when the Lord is pleased to hide Himself, to plunge us in such darkness. Where is your faith then? Now, He never does that, mind you, capriciously. That's never the Lord's purpose with us. But when it pleases him in his wise, in his ever kind, generous wisdom to hide himself from us. How do we cope then, especially before the onlooking eyes of an unbelieving world? Think of how men stood before the cross with wagging heads and biting tongues, lashing out at our Lord as he hung upon the cross in blood and agony and saying, He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now. And even then, in the face of the mockery and ridicule of men, 
His darkest hour, when all the lights went out, the confession of faith of this prototypical man of faith was, My God, my God. The great challenge in our darkness, I think, is to walk by faith and not by sight, isn't it? It really is. And that is precisely where many Christians are at this very moment with respect to what we see transpiring in our own nation. We are in a trial of faith in this nation at the present time, we Christians. And an onlooking world is watching us to see whether we will proceed by faith or by sight. Come what may, he is our God. He's our God. And what a challenge that is. Do we live by what our eyes and our senses can see? Or do we live by the revelation of who God is in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? I have lived through some, through some very dark and difficult days. I have. But even so, I don't think that I have even remotely known what it is to have all the lights go out. I have known people for whom I believe that's been their experience. But I don't think it's been mine. But whether we pass through the valley, the ultimate valley of the shadow of death, or whether we experience periodic punctuations of darkness in our lives. Our calling, our great calling is to live out all of our days trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and relying upon our God. How could Job say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? Why did Job say that? I think it's because he knew that even if it pleased God to slay him, it was because God had his ultimate and eternal blessedness at heart. Now, that is utterly counterintuitive and countercultural to the world in which you and I live today. But it is the meat and the drink of believing sinners in Jesus Christ to embrace this reality. And that's why every day, but especially in a day when all the lights go out, that we go back to the objective reality of Calvary and there to stay upon our God. He spared not his own beloved son. How shall he? How shall he withhold from me any good thing? May God grant us the grace to live by faith and not by sight. Let us pray.